Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Michael Barnett, who is Professor of Management and Global Business at Rutgers Business School and Academic Director of the Rutgers Institute for Corporate Social Innovation. Mike currently serves as an International Research Fellow of the Oxford University Center for Corporate Reputation, Distinguished Visiting Professor in the Social Innovations Group at eGate Business School in Mexico, Affiliate Visiting Scholar at the Price College of Business at the University of Oklahoma, and Fellow of the Institute of Ethical Leadership at Rutgers University. Welcome, Mike. Oh, thanks. Pleasure to be here. I want to start with one of your recent papers um, entitled The Rise and Stall, uh, The Rise and Stall of Stakeholder Influence, How the Digital Age Limits Social Control, uh, in which you ask, have st- stakeholders increased their influence over firm behavior in the digital age? Um, I, before we get into it, Mike, I want to get a, a, a definition of stakeholder when I think about stakeholders in general, I think about shareholders, managers of the firm, uh, employees, uh, buyers and suppliers to the firm, uh, maybe the immediate community, the firm is located and society more broadly. Uh, is that a complete set or am I missing somebody? Well, it's a pretty amorphous concept um, that <clears throat> has been, <clears throat> excuse me, has been accused of being kind of all things to all people and therefore meaningless in some settings, but yeah, I think your list is, is, pre, is pretty accurate. Um, the, we have some breakdown in a variety of different ways between primary s- stakeholders and secondary stakeholders is one yeah. of the distinctions that we make. So, um, but yeah, I, it's those who can affect or are affected by the firm's behaviors is uh, the general definition. Okay. Um, and over time it's become mostly focused on those who can affect the firm. Okay, and so so what's the difference? Well, how how do you differentiate between primary and secondary stakeholders? Generally, it's if they have a transactional relationship with the firm. The primary so if, ones. Yeah. Okay. So if they have resources that the firm uh, wants access to, and that, therefore they can basically have power, direct power over the firm by their willingness to provide those resources and end on favorable terms. 
Okay, okay. And so, so in the paper, um, you say, I mean, this is uh, sort of uh, what you reached uh, in terms of a conclusion. You say, um, we draw from cognitive theory to argue that all the social media has made it easier for stakeholders to broadcast their demands. The methods used to cope with the drastic change in quantities and qualities of information in the digital age have limited stakeholder influence in the aggregate. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Sure. I mean, there was this great hope. I don't know if you can cast your mind back all the way to uh, the turn of the millennium, but when the digital age was coming along, there was just this grand notion that now with instant access to companies, um, even secondary stakeholders, anybody can have uh, a significant influence over firm behavior. And so there was going to be this sort of democratization of control of firms. Yeah. But that hasn't really come to be realized. I mean, the problem is that it basically has given everybody a microphone or a megaphone, really. Mm -hmm. um, everybody can shout anything that they want, but now everybody has a, a megaphone. And so it's just a bunch of noise. And actually, firms can play that to their advantage. And they actually, uh, that's the stall notion of stakeholder influence. They still um, maintain the discretion to behave as they want. They can sort of ride out the storm and even play some games by being, by pretending to be some of these stakeholders themselves. Um, through astroturfing and other ways of kind of disguising their behaviors um, in the yeah. social media sphere. So in the end, I mean, we don't now have more control over firm behaviors, even though from time to time something happens that gives any given individual some undue influence. Like they can send a, a tweet that inadvertently ends up catching uh, you know, the, the media storm that particular day and does have an influence, but in the right. aggregate, any individual is no more likely to uh, change corporate behavior than they did before. And uh, corporations still pretty much have um, the run of, of the house themselves. Yeah. So, you know, when I think about this, um, you know, the, the secondary stakeholders, for example. So I think about incentives, Mike. Uh, and so, you know, that the general notion of the firm is that the managers of the firm uh, take uh, decisions and actions to maximize shareholder value. Uh, and, and that notion is not necessarily true, <laughs> as, right. as many of us, uh, many of us know. And so, so, you know, I think about incentives, both for the firm to act, as well as sort of the distributed, uh, let's call it secondary stakeholders uh, to, to, to act. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you talk a bit about incentives on both sides of this puzzle? Well, <clears throat> excuse me again. Um, <clears throat> we're trying to uh, really get this alignment between business and society. That's kind of the holy grail of the invisible hand guiding firm behaviors when they benefit themselves to also benefit society. Yeah. Um, and the idea is that uh, this alignment doesn't quite fit um, between secondary stakeholders in the interest of the firm, but it can fit with primary stakeholders. Hmm. So, we developed this business case really over time that's trying to make the connection uh, between the, the actions of the firms and secondary stakeholders, even though it's really only going to benefit the primary stakeholders. So firms will do things that benefit the primary stakeholders while not necessarily doing those things that benefit secondary stakeholders. Right, right. So so if they were to have some sort of a objective function, it doesn't necessarily include the secondary uh, stakeholders. And the, the notion there is the, the secondary stakeholders may have 
um, may have you know some some issue with the firm or they have some guidance for the firm uh, and so they can they can assemble and given the social media the power of social media uh, ask the firm to do so, do something now at that juncture the the firm's managers have to sort of look at that request and look at what they're trying to maximize right right yeah, uh, and so often it's it's not so easy to make the business case for some of these societal issues, and so they go by the wayside. Yeah, unless there's a time of just excess resources, or they're under attack, or it's you know the kind of the pet project of a particularly powerful primary stakeholder. So if the primary stakeholders care about this, then the firms may take it on. But um, just out of general kindness, that's often not a great long-term driver of corporate behavior. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, you, you talk about, uh, again, you know, if, I, if I think about incentives, uh, there is an information overload in the, in the Internet, as we all are very familiar with. All right. A- and so there, there are two competing things going on. Um, the secondary stakeholders now, um, uh, presumably, they have a stage uh, to, to, uh, to interact with the firm. But on the other hand, there is so much information that that are, that is coming to them. It becomes difficult for them to assemble to get on that stage to do something. Right. Yeah. So it, it's difficult for secondary stakeholders to break through. I mean, there are so many of them coming at the firm from very different directions um, that firms basically don't they, they don't have to listen to any of those um, because they can write out that storm and there'll be a different. Um, sort of social media shout at them in a different direction shortly after that. So um, none of this really comes together. Everybody can individually shout, but there's not a whole lot of unified direction. Right. And the firm can easily, like you say, it can easily ignore it. um, Because, you know, it it, it tends to be noise. Uh, But you could also come, come at it from another direction that the firm's actually using this uh, to to influence uh, consumers in some ways, right? Mm-hmm. And so you had cited, you know, a case uh, of Walmart co co opting bloggers. Right. Uh, <clears throat> could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, that's the the astroturfing notion, the idea that they pretend to be a sort of grassroots movement and uh, try to gain the legitimacy associated with that. So. It's not, you can't really tell if you're talking to a bot, if you're talking to a real person, if you're talking to somebody with an interest that is supported by a company, uh, social media makes this even easier to to do. And so firms just get more sophisticated in it. Um, you know, they can be taken aback by any individual person who kind of comes out of the blue, but they can also pretend to be those people and kind of counter it. Yeah. Uh, so the degree to which they can play that game or what we describe in that process model in the paper as sense giving activities they can, you know, also shape the conversation, not simply react to it. Right, right, and and that's that becomes increasingly relevant for the era of fake news. <laughs> in some ways, <laughs> yeah, uh, it's not just corporations, but also we are seeing it in the political arenas, right? Yeah, so all of this is very top of mind as we, you know, watch the Republican National Convention and so forth. The, the stories can be shaped uh, in very interesting ways, and the audience, the, you know, the part of the paper too is about the bubbles and the idea that it's very hard to get information that invalidates any particular view to any particular stakeholder. And so the likelihood that 
individuals are going to attack firms decreases as well because they're not getting any conflicting information. Right. The, all the all the information is kind of, you know, everybody can have their own personalized channel that only tells them what they already want to hear. And then they can also discount it as fake news if it might be accidentally fall into uh, their space and it discounts what they've said. Yeah, so it is, you know, in some sense, it's sort of scary in the sense that um, because we don't really have any control over the message, so to speak, uh you know, it, it's possible in some uh, some arenas, fake news has more power than real news, right? Uh, definitely. I mean, it's, it's it, it reinforces what you already think if it's used effectively. And so um, and then sort of uh, makes you invulnerable to uh, actual facts. So in the end, even if you're earnest uh, and you're not biased in any particular way, um, you don't know what to pay attention to, what to believe. And so everything becomes questionable and it's really hard to distinguish reality. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, this, this, uh, you might be able to predict this from a theoretical perspective that you get polarization, uh, not only as in the secondary stakeholder, in the secondary stakeholder community for a firm, but also in the political arenas, mm -hmm. uh, because you, you tend to believe, or you tend to listen to what you believe, and then you only listen to that. <laughs> so it's a reinforcing effect. Right. And so when you think about the digital age and, you know, the idea that and somehow we have access to all this information, but we pay attention to a, a narrower and narrower and more specialized slice. And so it's perverse in that we actually get more, that we're less informed. So we have access to more food, but we eat more and more junk food. Um, <laughs> we get unhealthier as a result. Uh, and it has a perverse outcome, which is, you know, really the point we were trying to make in that paper is that, with all of this, we actually don't have more control. It's it's stalled out, and we, we suspect it actually has declined. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when you reviewed the, the literature, you know, you ask, uh, why do organizations act as they do? Uh, and you say, um, and maybe this is from Freeman uh, a paper in 1984, stakeholder theory bridges these perspectives by arguing that because they can affect firm performance, Stakeholders influence firm behavior, but firms make strategic decisions about how to respond to stakeholder demands. Mm -hmm. And that that idea um, has gotten more and more, you know, sort of obscure in the sense that, you know, if there was any accountability in the in the past uh, for for the firms to respond to some, you know, some stakeholder uh, objection it has become less so now, right? Because of all the noise. Uh, possibly, um, yeah. you know, these do tire out pretty quickly there. Are, you know, the Twitter storms have less than 24 hour cycles. Yeah. Uh, and so you can generally wait them out. But, you know, the other interesting angle of that is that people feel like they've done something. If all they do is just like or forward um, or, you know, retweet something. And so that we call that slacktivism. And, <laughs> yeah. and, it, it, it's very easy to write out. And so people can basically splint or uh, vent their spleen uh, on social media and companies can, you know, ignore it for a day and, and then it goes on. Hmm. Uh, we have very short memories and companies that even get heavily pilloried and maybe lose significant stock value one day, bounce back the next. And so companies figure out that 
if they just ignore it or they gently apologize but don't change their behavior, um, folks may, you know, it may look bad for a day, but they'll go past it in the next. Um, and, and, you know, again, in the, in the review of literature, again, you find that uh, it's an empirical study by Easley and Lennox in 2006 mm-hmm. that uh, legitimate, legitimate and urgent requests by secondary stakeholders are more likely to receive positive responses from firms. It seems obvious, but it, it has a lot of implications as to how secondary stakeholders should think about what they want to do. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, it's... Um, you know, I think in a lot of the responses, maybe from the airwaves is driven by emotions mm-hmm. and emotions are self-reinforcing and gets amplified uh, in the social channels. And so by the time it gets to the firm, uh, you know, it may not be a legitimate uh, yeah. issue and it takes a long time to get there. Oh, sure. And, and firms that aren't really taking the long view and, and just kind of are knee-jerk responding can get swayed by that emotion and do some quick action that they often have to reverse as another group who has the opposite view comes in and attacks them. Right. Um, we've seen it many, many times. An uh, uh, example that comes to mind is, I think, um, support for gay rights at Walt Disney World or Microsoft. So at one point, they supported it, and then the next day, they pulled their support because uh, they were pushed back by the right, and, and, and you just ended up looking very bad. The companies need to do things that are more consonant with their identity and stick with those and defend them where necessary, as opposed to being just kind of buffeted around as, as they get a bad tweet here and there. Mm-hmm. And and then there's a the question of sort of the power struggle, right? Uh, so uh, typologies of stakeholder influence strategies have been developed based on essentially two dimensions, firm power and stakeholder power. Right. And so... Um, I, I don't know what you, what what your perspective is, Mike. So um, stakeholders are distributed. Um, isn't the firm in a better position to you know sort of look at uh, the variety of responses they're getting to optimize it the way that it wants to do? Whereas the stakeholders don't really have sufficient comp- uh, I shouldn't say competence, but information and transparency to do that in a systematic way or or not. Oh, definitely. I mean, that's my ultimate argument is that, you know, we've been trying to come up with this kind of market solutions to corporate governance for decades. And we've we've successfully sold it in the academic literature. And of course, businesses buy into it because Mm -hmm. it keeps government off their back. But, you know, decentralizing control of corporations to individuals means that you're get putting it into the hands of people who really don't have access to all the information and or no, you know, even the the ability to distinguish what should be done and and they all disagree as well and so that leaves companies with a lot of discretion to play i mean classic corporate governance outside of the digital age um, talks about you know basically shareholder concentration and if you have a few large shareholders you're much more closely governed than if you have a very distributed everybody owns a couple of shares you can basically do whatever you want as a result and that's what this has produced you know an environment where there is no centralized control because government has backed off uh, under the notion that the reputation of the firm will hold sway and they'll obviously only do good things because they don't want to harm their reputation. But hmm. that reputational mechanism is in the hands of all these people who really don't know what's going on and can easily be played by a skillful company. Right, right. 
Yeah, so, so you say also in the paper, Mike, where there is high interdependence because the firm is centrally located in a dense stakeholder network, the firm will negotiate with those stakeholders who deal directly with the firm by attaching strings to the resources, the use of resources those stakeholders could control. So this is more, uh, probably more relevant for primary stakeholders, right? Well, that's, that's again, the logic is that firms will be concerned with societal issues um, to the degree, which is, you know, the realm of some of these secondary stakeholders, to the degree that their primary stakeholders are. Yeah. And so um, if they're not, then then they uh, really don't have the discretion, the freedom to do it, because then they would be harmed by their uh, powerful primary stakeholders. Right, right. Yeah, and, you know, you, you're looking at a, there's a lot of literature around this. It's a, it's a topic that is researched quite a bit. Uh, but you note that there are certain assumptions uh, made in previous work that may not be true. For example, uh, you say rarely are the bounded rationality of the actors and limitations to cognitive capacity uh, taken into account in stakeholder influence literature. Mm-hmm. Um, and this goes back to the, the idea that, you know, uh, especially secondary stakeholders, it's a collection of individuals who may be motivated by by something uh, but may not may not have the capacity to really analyze and and rationally think about it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's you know a fair. A lot of my work is trying to create more of a process um, yeah. for stakeholder influence over firms and firms' influences over stakeholders. Um, getting beyond kind of the the point estimate is the way I, I describe a lot of the work in the in the literature is they say given this situation how will a stakeholder respond? You know, will they attack the firm? Will they ignore it? Uh, um, but that presumes that the stakeholder has even seen it. Yeah. But we're all dealing, you know, we are the stakeholders and I really don't have any idea what's going on at ExxonMobil right now um, or many <laughs> of any other companies. And so we're expected to somehow keep track of all this. And then as a company does something bad, somehow that's supposed to filter into our consciousness and, and lead to that decision point. But I say step back if you uh, up to the top of that uh, particular funnel and see whether or not you even notice it and then how you process it before you even come to that decision point. And you'll see that most of it gets filtered out before you even have the chance to make that decision. Yeah, yeah. So you have a framework here uh, you call stakeholder influence in the digital age where you have information disclosures that gets filtered into shareholder decisions to act that gets framed into changes in firm behaviors. And we talked about a little bit of this already. Uh, there is, a, so you, you call it sense-making and sense-giving right? Uh, from disclosures into, into the decisions. You want to describe that a bit? Uh, well, I mean, that's all different parts of the process. Um, yeah. And sense-making and sense-giving are kind of standard terms in the literature. We just applied it to this particular setting. But, you know, the idea is that as an event happens, um, it has to actually be processed. You have to decide whether it's a good act or a bad act. I mean, different people are going to disagree about it or relative to a given firm. Um, if it has a good history, then uh, the new events might be interpreted in a more favorable light than if that firm has had a bad history, for example. And so all of that stuff gets uh, wrapped up into the sense-making process of mm-hmm. the individual stakeholder as to how they make sense of any given action that they might have noticed. Uh, 
Yeah. And then the sense giving is on the firm side of things and maybe other stakeholders um, where there are others who are trying to shape that sense making process. And so they're providing new information, maybe responding to the crisis, um, you know, maybe on social media uh, to uh, try and help you to think better of the firm and the action that it took. And so those are kind of, you know, doing battle. All of this, were, as you are pointing out, is described in sort of a battle framework, but it is a, a battle for making sense of this and deciding whether or not it's actually going to have any influence on the firm and its behaviors over time. Right. And then the next step, once the stakeholder decisions to act, you have sort of slack, you call slacktivism and synchronicity. Right. So so slacktivism is, is basically uh, stakeholders taking uh, sort of a, a lazy approach to it. Right. So um, if a firm does something bad, you could, I mean, we're seeing this now, you could literally go burn the firm down. Right. Mm. Um, or you could do many things short of that, which is not buy from them. You could choose to basically do nothing or what the social media age has really made happen a lot is you can just post something. Uh, you can like it, you can uh, uh, forward it, share it and so forth. And that may be enough for you to feel like you've done something. And so you don't have to take that next step. You don't actually have to change your behavior, uh, uh, which might then change the firm's behavior. You know, you don't have to stop buying from that gas station or that store. Right. Right. And, you know, you also look at so synchronicity, um, you know, uh, from a firm perspective, but also from a from a governmental perspective, um, where there's a case where Chinese regime follows two strategies. The first is passive, wherein the social media impersonators are told not to engage on controversial issues. And the second is active, wherein they are told to stop discussions with the potential for collective action through active distraction and active censorship. Now, this is this is noted in China, but I would imagine this is happening all around the world today. Yeah, um, I, I don't have any insights. Um, and uh, I'm hoping that most firms aren't quite that conniving. But um, certainly there are very active social media and crisis response teams that do go into social media and uh, make a concerted effort, generally disguised, um, to um, to shape the conversation and, and disrupt. Because if, you know, the, there still is a coordination issue, um, you don't actually have to bring everybody into the same space physically now. Um, you can do it uh, more easily and costlessly, basically, um, via social media. But everybody is distracted and, and uh, anybody can be in charge of that thing because there is no price to it. Uh, and so it's very hard to know um, yeah. how to, you know, and so it still becomes very hard to synchronize activities where the real power lies. If everybody is aligned into the tip of a spear, then you're very powerful. But if everybody is uh, running in different directions, like the proverbial uh, herd of cats, then uh, nothing happens. And so um, I just, we just pointed out basically that uh, just because it's free and costless to do doesn't mean that we can effectively synchronize all these behaviors. In fact, it, with everybody having their own kind of very customized view of what the company should do, mm. uh, it's actually very easy for everybody to just uh, be parties of one and, and attack. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, since I want to, uh, I want to jump into another paper, which is sort of related, uh, but in a different topic. Um, and, and it's entitled beyond good intentions, Designing Corporate Social Responsibility, CSR Initiatives for Greater Social Impact. Mm -hmm. uh, 
where you ask, are corporate social responsibility initiatives providing a societal good that they promise? Uh, and again, you did, uh, you, you looked at um, some of the literature, some of the, some of the research that has been done in this area. We looked at all of it. <laughs> you looked at all of it. Yeah. yeah. You want to talk a bit about that? Oh, sure. So this is, a, you know, I'm glad you, I'd forgotten which papers we were going to discuss. And, and so I'm glad that we're discussing the yeah. two papers that were both with the same author team, um, did these both in conjunction with uh, Irene Henriquez at York University in Toronto and uh, Brian Husted, who's at the Igade Business School in Monterey, Mexico. And uh, uh, in this one, we it's a, it's a meta study. Well, not, not actually a meta study. It's a review study. Yeah. Um, part of the, uh, this year's uh, special issue review issue for journal of management. And yeah, we, we just, we looked at literally all of the uh, CSR performance studies out there and, and it's a massive literature, particularly since 2010, but we found, I think some 6,200 plus studies that looked at the performance outcome. And um, what we were curious about is whether or not, uh, well, the degree to which the literature has shown that all of these CSR activities or any of these CSR activities actually have social impact because there are all these programs, companies are putting literally billions of dollars, a lot of it in marketing, but a lot of it substantively as well, uh, into efforts to have significant impact on very big problems. If you look at some of the, the materials of some of the major corporations, I mean, they are making grand claims about transforming <laughs> society in very meaningful, important ways. So we thought, well, let's look at the studies uh, and, and because we don't have direct access to all of these projects. Yeah. Uh, Let's look at the studies and see if we find that impact. And uh, well, I mean, we did not. I don't want to spoil the surprise. <laughs> yeah, so, zero. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, you know, I, I found it very interesting, Mike. So you you sort of looked at it longitudinally as well, right? Um, yeah, since uh, yeah. what did we go back to nineteen seventy or so? Yeah, we, we we tried to look at all of it, um, but it wasn't really substantive until the turn of the millennium, and then particularly in the most recent decade was 5,000 plus of the 6,000 plus. Yeah. So, you know, um, one of the things that, that, um, uh, that I picked up is you say annual spending by fortune 500 firms on corporate philanthropy uh, exceeds 15 billion um, in dollar amounts, um, you know, in a, in a regime where we have one company worth $2 trillion <laughs> Uh, I don't know if that is that significant. <laughs> what do you think? Well, that's, that's a good point relative, yeah. but it's still a lot of money that could make a big difference. I, I think I could, I could probably have a hell of a party with just a fraction of that money. <laughs> <laughs> that's for sure. So, so you, you, you know, you say in the paper that scholars have shown that CSR can provide relational reputation and financial benefits to the firm undertaking it. And so let me ask you a sort of a loaded question. Is CSR sort of a marketing gimmick of Fortune 500 firms or is something more to it? Well, I mean, that's the battle. It is mostly a marketing gimmick um, because it's intended to, you know, kind of improve the image of the firm in the eyes of those primary stakeholders that it's very vital that they maintain solid support with. Um, but it's really up to those primary stakeholders whether or not it's substantive. If, as we've already described, uh, maybe we probably, almost certainly we can't do it, um, but we are at least trying to pretend that um, all of us as primary stakeholders can uh, tell, the, anyway, we can call bullshit on firms and we can actually tell whether or not they're doing the right thing. Yeah. Uh, and, and if we could then, and if we cared enough to dig into it, 
then we could force firms to be substantive and, and they wouldn't get those PR benefits. In fact, it would backfire if they weren't doing it substantively. Hmm. I mean, the one saving grace uh, is that if they are just doing it for PR and it's not really being done substantively, then in effect, they're increasing um, their risk profile because if they are found out, yeah. then you know that bubble will burst. But then again, as we just discussed, it's probably a very short-lived bout of trouble and people will forget about it. Yeah, you know, the, and I think you, you think you talk about this in the paper, since we don't really have very clear measurements of outcome, societal benefits outcome, uh, you know, it's very difficult, uh, quote unquote, to find to, to found out because, you know, you can always say, <laughs> always point to something uh, that, right. you know, where that initiative has resulted in. And so, you know, my experience with Fortune 500 companies, uh, both as a consultant and from within, uh, there are a lot of initiatives like that. There is a portfolio of initiatives uh, a large company pursues in this area, uh, but there is very little accountability, um, you know, for for these types of initiatives. Uh, typically, you know, they're handled by uh, people who are not in a line function, but typically on a staff type function. And so there is, there is you know, much lower level of transparency and, and accountability. And so, you know, what comes out of that could be sort of a random outcome. Uh, absolutely. I mean, most of us, most of the time are happy to just be associated with a company that says it's doing nice things. Um, we don't really want to know. Uh, we don't want to get too much into the, the weeds on that. And so, you know, it's very easy for a company to, to get away with, um, you know, a nice glossy show, but not necessarily any substance behind it. Um, and they're not really going to fight that because they don't want to be that accountable either. Um, it's, it's hard to do it effectively, and it might require more resources, and they might not be doing it right in the first place. And so um, there's no need, if, if your stakeholders don't care, or they're satisfied with something short of that, then of course you're going to stick with something short of that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, I found this, um, you, you did the, you took all the literature out there on this, on this topic and you did a cluster analysis, but also showing the interconnectivity between them. Right. And uh, you did that for the entire data set. And then you looked at for specific chunks of time, right? Right. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, so there appears to be three different uh, major clusters and then those things have kind of moved around over time, right? Yeah, I, I don't have it in front of me. I yeah. apologize for that. I should have been wise enough to pull that up on the computer. But um, yeah, so this is, you know, we did a visual mapping. Yeah. Um, Irene Henriquez, the, the second co-author, she um, has a kind of this is our baby using this particular technique. And it, it shows some very neat things when you have a data set that that's large, that's so large that you couldn't really get a hold of uh, a true understanding of it without kind of doing it in a pictorial format. And so you get this cloud of different clusters and they're related in different ways. And we show how they evolved over time, but because so much of it has been chunked into the last decade, we couldn't show a great deal of transformation in a very fine way. Hmm. Um, but overall, we did show this this kind of transition to further down in what we describe as a logic model um, toward trying to get past hand waving and toward um, at least showing some outcomes, but not whether or not the program itself 
was responsible for those outcomes. It's, it's a bit like um, we're dealing with with these COVID vaccine trials, right? So <laughs> yeah. we have some things that have shown some outcomes, but we haven't done the correct tests of them um, that, that show whether or not relative to uh, a placebo they have any effect. So it's like that with um, the best CSR programs are at least dealing with the idea that they need to have some sort of outcome measure. And that's as far as we've really gotten in the literature. Um, but we still haven't gotten to true impact because we're not properly designing these things to uh, allow for that sort of uh, outcome. Yeah, yeah. One thing that jumped out, I don't know if this is relevant, Mike, you know, when when we uh, look at the, the three cluster analysis over time, uh, the big bubble in the middle uh, was labeled responsibility. Uh, that seems to shrink over time. <laughs> and so, you know, the, the last uh, analysis post 2010s, uh, there is no, there is no, you know, uh, bubble uh, that is uh, that's labeled responsibility anymore. Mm -hmm. what, what, what is the implication of that? Um, I don't know offhand. Yeah. I, okay. I've forgotten about that particular aspect of it, but you know, the, the terminology changes over time. Yeah. Um, you know, we've moved from corporate social responsibility to maybe a focus on sustainability or innovation and uh, impact. And so, um, you know, so some of that is a, just a change in, in the scholarly terminology. We do have this great habit of trying to make our particular term be the, the, the grand one that's used across all studies. And sometimes that works. Okay. Okay. And, and you have a logic model, as you mentioned, uh, a corporate social responsibility logic model. And, you know, you have some antecedents, you have corporate social activities, you have results, outcomes, and ultimately impacts. Mm -hmm. And the difficulty, again, is, you know, really kind of going through this entire model and getting to real impacts of this, uh, you know, CSR initiatives, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, so as you, as you look forward uh, in this arena, um, how do you think companies should think about this? I mean, if they're really serious about uh, these initiatives and mm -hmm. they're really serious about actually delivering a societal good that, that is tangible, that's measurable, that's demonstrable, mm -hmm. uh, what do you think are the characteristics of these initiatives that, that will have a higher chance of doing that? Mm -hmm. um, well, I mean, they're all going to be very idiosyncratic relative to, you know, they've got to be focused on the specific setting um, and so there is, a, I don't think there's a generalizable model for any given program, but we can start to develop design rules. I mean, the, the ideas that we put forward in that paper is that you should be pushing companies to use a design approach, design sciences to um, design studies and treat them like experiments, like mm -hmm. medical studies in a way, uh, and, you know, control for a variety of factors and experiment using a variety of different methods and see which ones work in your particular setting. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, learn that benchmark that to other studies. And, and overall we could then get kind of a cumulative body of knowledge of what works for a particular type of program in a particular type of setting in a, in a particular point in time in a particular country and so forth. Um, so we would need to, you know, it's, we've got, the energy we've got the studies there. I mean, if people have done in the last decade more than five thousand published studies, which means they've probably actually done ten or twelve thousand or more, mm -hmm. uh, then we have enough, you know, push behind this to do it effectively um, uh, through all those different iterations that it would actually take. But, but overall, what we're talking about is a design approach where we actually use a very sophisticated 
uh, controlled experimental method to see what works and what doesn't work and then fine tune that in that exact same way over time to um, figure out the best approaches to these things. So, you know, if you want to end hunger in your community, there probably is a best way to do it. It's not just random whoever happens to show up in the, uh, you know, the corporate social responsibility office at your company at that point in time and said, I got a, a few free hours. Um, there's a very systematic way to do it. And companies have, you know, this is why we even care about corporate social responsibility is because corporations have this powerful set of tools and resources and processes that allow them to make a significant scalable uh, difference impact in, in um, whatever they choose to do. So we're just saying if they choose to do corporate social responsibility, let's do it right. You know, actually use all those same tools yeah. um, to, to make an impact and not just uh, you know, do enough to, to get credit for it. Right. Yeah. It also seemed to me, Mike, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, th this is very amenable to sort of economic valuation, right? So we cannot do a net present value here, but, you know, this will be a bundle of uncertainties, bundle of options, interrelated things. So you could, you know, you could apply options pricing uh, methodologies. I'm just thinking about standardization, right? So yeah. especially from a micro perspective, from a, from a inside the company perspective, Mm -hmm. If I'm going to run, you know, a, a portfolio of CSR initiatives and mm -hmm. they're going to be interrelated, yeah. I will have an obligation to uh, shareholders to demonstrate an economic value that I'm delivering to mm -hmm. the society. Right. Yeah. And, and it seems to me that it's very amenable to those, that, those types of analysis. Well, and in fact, you know, I've suggested we're not going to talk about other papers, uh, but um, in some other work, I have compared corporate social responsibility to uh, real options approach. And, and so has uh, one of my co-authors there, Brian Houston, in some of his work. But um, I've also been very critical of, of a real options perspective because effectively you can put any numbers you want in there. Yeah. And uh, it becomes it's still the same thing as executive judgment. I mean, you can, <laughs> you can decide. The, the gut yeah. feel overrides everything. Yeah. It, well, you know, it does. Or at least you can then put in numbers that, that justify it based on that gut feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, the, you know, the, the issue there is um, getting uh, managers in a firm who are very, very um, used to deterministic view of cash flows uh, to really start thinking about uncertainties mm -hmm. and how to sort of maximize that, uh, that limited resource that the company has put forward. Mm -hmm. And if you find that Initiative 5 is, you know, sort of, um, you know, 1% of initiative seven, you do have, you do have to understand that because the company mm -hmm. may put in the same level of uh, attention right. and resources to both initiatives. Yeah. I mean, ultimately there are only, you know, so many people, so much time and energy, so much attention, so much money. And so it, you should use that as effectively as possible to help society. Uh, there should be some interest in doing that. And again, it, it's a question of whether or not those in society will demand it. Um, and if we ignore it, then it's, it's fine just to use all that money for some nice and glossy efforts. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, you know, uh, I think uh, corporations now uh, have a hierarchy of problems they could, they could focus on. And society has sort of put, a, um, you know, put a prioritization of those activities. Right. So, you know, you have global warming that, most people uh, tend to think is a is a major problem, 
mm-hmm. um, you know, there is, you know, other things underneath that. So, so one question, you know, in conclusion, Mike, if you were to sort of, you know, go inside a company and say, uh, you know, I'm really serious about this. I want to have a portfolio of CSR initiatives and I'm going to pursue this. I'm going to demonstrate value. What is the process that you would put in and who are the type of people that you will engage to to accomplish that? Right. I, I think this has to be something that is um, coming from the top and is ingrained in the company. If it's just a set aside um, and something that you do to kind of keep uh, keep the stakeholders and keep the bad publicity um, outside of the company. If you're just buffering the company from reality by buying it off in effect, then it's never going to be effective. And you don't really care if it's effective because again, it's just there as a kind of a, a blunt force tool protecting the company. Um, you have to integrate. It has to be an authentic thing. It has to be part of the company. And then these ideas will kind of spring forth um, better ideas because they're not, you know, going back to that notion that, we're not just looking at the decision point of here, you're presented with a great idea. Will you do it or not? Um, are you even going to get to that point of having that great idea? Where, where do those come from? Well, that come from sort of living in that environment and, and being having it be a central part of your company. So you, you never you're never going to know whether or not um, you're going to get access to the right opportunities. If it's, again, just something that you really don't want to think about. It's not core part of your business. You're you're just trying to like do whatever it takes to um, not have to mess with it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, again, it's just something we describe, you know, I'm also an academic director. You know, I think you might have mentioned at the start, uh, academic yeah. director of the Rutgers Institute for Corporate Social Innovation. And that's the logic we're trying to push is this is about integrating things. This is about talking, you know, integrating the philanthropic efforts with the social responsibility efforts, with the advocacy efforts and trying to do all of this to create shared value across the company. And so you've got to live it, breathe it have it be a central part of what you do and, and start putting society at the forefront and think, what are the social problems that are out there that this company can profitably serve and, yeah. and not the reverse, not basically how can we make money and maybe do a little less harm? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, um, you know, I haven't um, thought a lot about this, Mike, but, you know, um, I think, I think uh, what you're saying is a very important thing. And that is, if I were to uh, sort of look at the companies that I know and I put them into two buckets and, you know, I ask who is going to be more effective in, in uh, doing CSR initiatives, the attribute that, that I would really use is culture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the operating system that company is based on. And that culture will tell you if the company can actually effectively conduct a CSR initiative, because it's not, you know, it's not what you write in the, in the annual reports. It's not what you put out, you know, in terms of what you're doing. Uh, but really, you can look inside the firm and see it is culturally aligned with the firm. Yeah. Right? And which, you know, yeah. this is classic organizational behavior kind of things. So, internal motivation, you know, psychology, internal motivation versus external motivation. And if it's, it's all external motivation, then, you know, you have to keep getting pushed again and again and again to keep with it. Um, but if it comes from inside, if it's authentic, uh, part of the culture of the organization, then it has a life of its own. Right, right. Yeah, excellent. Uh, thanks so much, Mike, for spending oh, time you. with me. And uh, yeah, good luck with this, uh, this research. It's very important. Well, thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Bye. All right, bye-bye.